world, Kibera, it's called. And we have a wonderful couple who are missionaries there who are going to host them. So I know we all would appreciate your prayers and our strong desire in these places, some of which are quite sensitive with regard to the gospel. Our great desire is for the folks to see the Lord Jesus in us as we serve them in various ways. So thank you for praying. And I'm glad Jimmy could go. He had, I think as many of you know, a motorcycle accident. And uh, we wondered about whether he's going to be able to go. And and he is. And so that is a blessing. I'm glad. I don't know how that brace is going to get through all the security checks, but it's been, been nice knowing you. <laughs> that is true. We'll see how it... Oh, I don't blame you. Oh, of course. I... Yeah, that is right. that is exactly right. It's coming, Jimmy. It is coming. Well, blessings to you all. Um, I have a watch today. Last week I used Jeannie's watch and uh, didn't want to give it back to her, but but she showed up, so I had to give it to her. But look at this watch I got today. See big numbers on it and stuff. I could see it from afar. So there you go. But don't get your hopes up. In the last hour, I didn't even look at it. So get comfortable. Oh, oh, Brother Chuck is here. (laughs) Maureen, feel free to sit somewhere else. Maureen, there's plenty. You don't have to. (laughs) No, that other guy. You are welcome, though. Hey, Brother Chuck, did you baptize... This is history. Everything here is first. And Brother Chuck had the privilege of baptizing first time in our new facility. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Wonderful. Oh, come on. The lady, did you hear, uh, came to know the Lord last week in the church services and was baptized today. How was the baptistry? Did it work? It was pretty good. It's what I get. Why do I even talk to this guy? Oh, my goodness. Fine. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, I mentioned this in the last hour, perhaps uh, inappropriately. I think we spelled baptistry wrong on the signs. I'm not lying. It's spelled B-A-P-T-I-S-T-E-R-Y. But there's no E in it, right? Unless you're like from London or something. Oh, sorry, Linda. Not even there? Okay, so I can't blame it on the British. It's spelled wrong. I'm not kidding you. It's back. You know, when you enter the baptistry back, like from the worship area hall, I saw it two times on the men's entrance and the women's entrance. So there you have it. Only the Bible is inerrant. The signs are not. So, but we'll fix it. We get a little duct tape. (laughs) Magic marker. (laughs) Well, blessings, everybody. We're in Luke chapter 18 today. It's comfortable, uh, more comfortable in here than in the last hour, and then it will be, I think, in the next hour. It gets warm when we get everybody in here, but uh, we'll work it out little by little. Um, Shortly before the rapture, we'll have it all together. (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? That would be wonderful. <laughs> really good. If the rapture comes this afternoon, Brother Chuck, who perhaps you just met, he's going to be doing the Bible study regularly. <laughs> yeah. so. Did you meet Brother Chuck yet? This lady is a visitor, and I think she should know. So. I'm glad to see you got the expensive seats. Yours has arms on it. Where'd you get it? 
Wow. That's pretty good. You, you brought it with you? Okay. <laughs> so we started Luke chapter 18 last week and looked at the first part of it, the first eight verses, a parable. And now we'll look at a second parable in verses 9 to 14. Just to refresh our memories, what's a parable? <laughs> it's a story, exactly. Does it have to be factually true? No. It communicates a truth, but it's a creative way of communicating the truth, and so uh, it, it is not necessarily based on an actual incident, though it could be. Yes, sir? Well, that's my question. Have, have you ever seen parables that actually are true? Uh, yes. In fact, the one we read last week and the one we'll read today could very well. They're not, they shouldn't be far-fetched. They have to have a ring of reality, otherwise we don't connect with it. But, but we can't say it actually happened, though it surely could have. Yeah, that's an excellent question. But again, the parable loses its meaning entirely if there's no connection to a, a potentially real event. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. All right, so here we are, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he, who is the he? Correct, it is the Lord Jesus. He also told this parable, so here's a second, to some people, now we know the audience. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. Well, today, that doesn't look like a bad thing. That's what all the kids are being taught. Believe in yourself. And now the Lord seems to be targeting those who do. As if to say there's really something wrong about putting undue trust and confidence in yourself. So that's entirely different than the atmosphere of the day. He's addressing some people who trusted in themselves, in particular that they were righteous. Uh, so here's the deal. <clears throat> that's a real problem. If you think you are inherently one who has right standing with God because of the way you're living, you're in big trouble because you'll never call upon his mercy. Why do you need God to be merciful to you if your merits are sufficient to carry you into his favor? See the danger here? So uh, these are people who thought that right living gave you right standing with God. But the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even the best of us ain't so hot. So people who are self-righteousness do two things. They underestimate the holiness of God and they underestimate the sinfulness of man. <laughs> so the holiness of God requires... Holiness, not only in deed, but also in thought. Wow. So think of the Ten Commandments, and the first nine have to do with overt behaviors, like don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't kill, stuff like that. But the last one is a killer. It says don't covet. So that's not a sin of behavior. That's a sin of the heart. To covet is to have a desire for something that cannot be righteously satisfied. You desire someone who's not your wife. You desire a possession that God doesn't want you to have. Covetousness. Every one of us is given to that. So we're in a heap of trouble. So the person who thinks based on his or her own right living, they get points with God sufficient not to need his mercy, are underestimating the intense holiness of God and they're underestimating the intense sinfulness of man. So the Lord is addressing them in particular in this particular parable. Now, not only that, when you are self-righteous, you have a tendency to view others with contempt. That's what it says. I have uh, relatives, cousins who are rabbis and uh, very religious, very zealous, very devout. And every time I get around them... <clears throat> Um, they arrogantly put me down for something. Way before I knew Jesus as Savior. Way before. I remember one time 
we had a family get-together, and I was uh, doing this fingernail thing. Now, it's not a good habit, but it's not exactly like mass murder, right? I'm biting my nails. Give me a break. In the middle of the family get-together, one of my rabbi cousins stands up and rebukes me because that is to defile your body created in the image of God. I remember one time one of our relatives died, and uh, I was asked to be a pallbearer at the funeral. So that's what I'm doing. Apparently, I didn't stop exactly when you're supposed to. Apparently. I took one extra step, and another one of my rabbi cousins, in front of everybody, grieving relatives and everything, rebukes me. See, when you, when you have a measure of self-righteousness, which you think has distinguished you from the rest of the pack, you put down the rest of the pack. Well, those need to be targeted by this parable. So that's what, that's what the Lord is doing over here. Okay, so here it is. Here's the parable, verse 10. Two men went up to, into the temple. So uh, the temple is in Jerusalem at this time. By the way, it's not there now. What, what, do you know what's standing where the temple once was? Dome of the Rock. So, so kids, uh, Lord willing, we'll see it. I'm going to Israel with the fowls and these two troublemakers. So uh, right now it's the Dome of the Rock. So the temple city, but here's the deal. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. So just to get to Jerusalem, you're always going up. It's elevated. But even in Jerusalem, you're going up still further to the temple because it's elevated above it all. It was on a platform, raised platform. It's still there today. And that way you could see it from miles away. Marble, gold, sun would shine. You're making pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You see it from afar. That's where we get many of the Psalms. They're called Songs of Ascent. As you're ascending to Jerusalem, you're singing as you go. So two guys do this. Uh, They go to the, well, who are they? Well, uh, by the way, they're, they're going to pray. It says that. Does it say that in your Bible? They're going to pray. So here's the deal. You could go into the temple on that day anytime for private prayer. doesn't have to be scheduled. However, there were two scheduled times of uh, public assembly. One was 9 in the morning. One was 3 in the afternoon. But the rabbis added a third, which continues to this day, at noon. So there are three set times of corporate prayer, official times, 9, 12, and 3. In this day, only 9 and 3. It's likely that they were up there in the temple during one of these times, 9 and 3. By the way, both of these times also corresponded to the time of sacrifice, morning and afternoon. Unblemished male lambs were being sacrificed for sin. Keep that in mind because it's important. You'll see in just a second. So they go up to pray. Who are they? One, a Pharisee. So what do you know about the dem? What comes in the mind? You hear the word Pharisee. Definitely uh, under the law. And what would you say, Dave? Verse 9. Oh, well said. Man, Dave, that was good. They're the... Naturally, it comes from church. (laughs) They're the verse 9 people. Yeah, very religious. Under the law, as Brother Chuck said, they would be... um, Now, here's the deal. There were three major parties or sects in Israel at this time. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and a group called the Essenes. Have you heard of the Essenes? They left Jerusalem, went south a little bit along the Dead Sea, established a community, Essene community. What was found there? Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947. Very, very, very significant Dead Sea Scrolls. Essene community, separatists. Sadducees would be the equivalent of mainline Protestants today. Mainline Protestants. Religious, but sort of not really entirely believing that the Bible is God's word. De-supernaturalizing things. Not really believing in resurrection of the dead and angels and demons. You know, sort of religious. The Pharisees believed in the written 
law of God and the oral law. They believed that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, God not only gave him the Ten Commandments, but he also whispered in his ear all the rest of the oral law, which became Judaism. So the Pharisees put on the same level the written word of God and the word of the rabbis. And that exists today. So in Judaism, you got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You got the Bible plus the tradition of man. By the way, that's how every aberrant religious groups does it. Mormonism. The New Testament, for sure. And the Book of Mormon. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Islam. Quran. And a little bit of the Bible. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. On and on. Listen to me. When you bring together on the same level the the Bible, the Word of God, and other stuff, you get an amalgam, which is a mutation. So the reformers of old came up with a principle, a Latin term called sola scriptura. What does it mean? Just the Bible. Just the Bible. Meaning, it doesn't mean you can't read other stuff. What they meant is the, the authority we make recourse to is sola scriptura. Just the Bible. Not traditions, because traditions could be wrong. Not books about the Bible. Sola scriptura. I wish today we were people... Uh, a little more tied to that Reformation principle, sola scriptura. What do I mean? Today, I notice Christians seem to be more fascinated by books about the Bible than the books of the Bible. Please be careful. I don't mean this as a badge of honor, but I read very few books. Not that that's wrong. I'll tell you why I don't. I haven't finished exhausting the Bible yet. Have you? It's rich. It's safe. When I read the Bible, I don't have to ask, is this right or not? Is it accurate or not? Not only that, when I read the Bible, it reads me. That cannot be said of any other book. Could I encourage you to read the Bible a little more and books about the Bible a little less? It's like a hula hoop craze today. Relatively unknowns emerge with best-selling books. In the world, the Christian world flocks to it. Maybe good, maybe not. I don't know. All I know is when, the re- when I read the Bible, there's no question. It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's profitable. God's word given to us. Why not ask him to increase our hunger for it? Why not ask him to give us more of an appetite for it? It's good to read things. It's best to read the Bible. So so, uh, the the Pharisees did not embrace the principle sola scriptura, oral tradition, and uh, plus the Bible. You bring it together, they got some strange things. All right, that's the Pharisees. But they surely were considered conservative religious people of the day. In contrast to that guy who went up to prayer is this guy. It says the other, a tax collector. What do you think of those people? What was their reputation in the day? Tax collector. Dirtbags, as Greg, Greg says in the original Greek. <laughs> I mean, this is really true. Their reputation was not, why did they have a not good reputation? They were definitely corrupt. How did corruption of what kind? I mean, huh? They worked for the Romans, the bad guys. Because the Romans occupied the Holy Land, oppressed the residents. So these tax collectors were Jews who went over to the dark side. Whoa, traitors. But not only that, they made their money off the backs of their fellow Jews. This is what happened. You have to exact a certain percentage of tax from your people for Rome. That's not the big problem. Rome said, anything above that is yours. So they put all kinds of pressure on their own people. Corruption was, the, I think you used the word, which is true. They were corrupt. And that's how they, that's how they um, established themselves, by, by, by essentially stealing from their own people. They were hated. hated. These people are in contrast. So you got a religious guy and you got a creep. 
in the culture of the day. That's what you got. In fact, in the Bible, tax collectors often used alongside other words like sinners and prostitutes. You see it in the Gospels all the time. It'll say tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Whoa. So these, you don't want your daughter marrying one of these guys. These are your not good guys. Okay, so that's what you got. All right. Now the Pharisee stood. Not so unusual. That was the common prayer position of the day in the culture. Standing. Not exclusively. Do you remember the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane? He fell down. So there isn't a biblical prayer position, but the most common in the day seemed to be this one. You stand. But there's something more in view here. It's not that just that he stood. He probably stood in the most prominent place so as to be seen by all people. And he probably stood as close as he could get to the Holy of Holies. So the Pharisee is in this particular position and was praying this to himself. What does that mean? Could mean silent prayer. Not likely. Why? Because they didn't do it so much then. They prayed out loud. Every once in a while here we've invited our whole group to stand and pray all together uh, and let God sort out our, our voices, our praises and petitions. That was pretty much the practice in that day. They stood they looked up, their eyes were open, their hands were raised, uh, and they prayed out loud. So it's not likely this means silent prayer. What does it mean he prayed this to himself? It means that though he addressed God, he wasn't really talking to God, nor was God listening to him. It was all about his virtues that he was rehearsing in his own mind under the guise of prayer. Look. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Yes, he are. (laughs) Everyone, every people is like other people. All have sinned. There you go. That's a great common denominator of humankind. And fall short of the glory of God. He's no, not me. I'm not the swindler, unjust, an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. So the tax collector is nearby. The Pharisee sees him with disdain. I'm not like that guy. He was a cut above. Let me tell you something. He probably was. From a moral point of view, he might have been more moral than the tax. He probably was. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't swindle. You know? As we compare ourselves to one another, he probably had higher rank than maybe most. And that's what he was doing. He said, as I compare myself to other mere mortals, oh my goodness, I'm doing so much better. My lifestyle is getting me major points. That's what he was doing. But not, not only that, he wasn't only a moral person. He was really religious. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. This is a good point. Really good point. So our sister is saying he was probably raised in a household where it was drummed into him. You're chosen. You're part of the chosen race. So kind of a source of arrogance and, and pride, don't you think? I thought I was that person. No, no. So, so it became a, a, no question about it. It, it fed his ego. You're, a, you're different. You're special. You know, you're better than anybody. Else. No question about it. And his religious activity also lent itself to that opinion. Look, I fast twice a week. So there was morality up above. And now you got religiosity here. By the way, do you know Satan loves religion? He's no, got no problem with religion. A personal relationship with the most high God he hates. But religion he likes. Why? Because religion gives people the, um, persuades people they're okay. I mean, look at it. I do good stuff. Other people don't do good stuff. I belong to a church, a synagogue, a mosque. You know, I bow to Mecca five times a day. I do whatever the deal is. And so religion pumps people's ego up. So it did in this case. I fast twice a week. You know what he's saying to God? I'm going above your requirements. Because in the day, the requirement is that you fast one time a year. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Leviticus says so. 
Then the Pharisees added other fast days to it. In this day, they also fasted on Monday and Thursday. Not all through the year, but most of the year. Monday and Thursday. Why those two days? The Pharisees believed Moses went up to the mountain on a Monday to get the law, second day of the week, and came down on Thursday, fifth day of the week, because Aaron was doing the golden calf thing. So, so the Pharisees said, to mark Moses going up and coming down, we'll fast. On, in addition to Yom Kippur, we'll fast on Monday and Thursday as well. So the Pharisees saying, God, you only require us to fast one time a year. Anyone could do that. I fast twice a week. Not only that, I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, the tithe was required, but he's gone above it. Why? You're only supposed to pay tithes on your earnings. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not just going to pay tithes on my earnings. I'm paying tithes on everything. If you give me a gift, I didn't earn it, but I'm going to even tithe off of that. See what he's saying? Okay, so, uh, so let me say something that has the potential to come back and haunt me. But I think it's important. The tithe in the Old Testament, there were three of them. Did you know that? Three. One, 10% tithe went to support the Levites, the priests. Another tithe of 10% went to support the temple, the environment of the temple. And then another tithe went to support poor people. So the tithes of the Old Testament meant a tither, a biblical tither, was actually giving approximately 25 to 30% of his or her income. If you're wanting to be a biblical tither, 10% ain't going to cut it. So here's where we get a little controversial. I don't think the New Testament teaches tithing at all. I think the New Testament principle is give as God's spirit motivates you to show love to him. In fact, I'm going to give you an exercise, something to do. You can do it while I'm in Israel, and that way I won't get your emails. <laughs> Look up the word tithe or tithing in a concordance in the New Testament. I'll bet you you can't find one place where it's ordained or mentioned in a positive way. Why? It was given under the Old Testament to Israel as part of the law of Moses. doesn't apply to Christians today. Now, I didn't say 10% isn't a good um, starting point or anything like that. I, I didn't say that. You can, use, you can use a starting point. But here's what God is after today. He doesn't want standardized giving. He wants us to give because we love him. So let me illustrate. If your wife is having a birthday... You don't know what to get her. You come to me. You say, Stuart, what do you suggest? I say, here's an idea. You say, good. You go out and get the gift. You give it to her. She loves it. You make the mistake of saying, yeah, Stuart told me to give it to you. The thrill is gone. You, I mean, you just lost whatever points you may have had. Why? She doesn't want you to do something because of an externally imposed mandate. She wants you to give her a gift out of a heart of love. How much more God? That's why the New Testament principle says God desires a cheerful giver. That's the New Testament principle of giving. So what do you and I do in the course of our life? We don't get locked into a, a rigid standard. We evaluate at all times. Oh, God, you've blessed me so much. I want to show you how much I appreciate you by giving this or by giving that. It varies. Now, I'll tell you the problem with thinking you're under the tithe. I, I've spoken to too many Christians who, if they can't give 10%, give what? Nothing. And cut themselves off from the blessedness of giving. It isn't about that. As God prospers, we give. That changes in the course of our lives. So be careful. As you grow from Old Testament to New Testament, you're growing from spiritual infancy to maturity. Old Testament rules and laws give way to New Testament Holy Spirit-produced motivation. Totally different. So if we teach tithing today, what about the rest of the Old Testament law? Why do we extract only that? 
when it's part of the rest of the Old Testament law. The church today has dismissed all of the, most of the Old Testament as being irrelevant. Why is the tithe extracted? So I know that's a very controversial kind of a thing, and it's kind of a cowardly deal to bring it up before I leave town. <laughs> but that's pretty good timing. So, so here's the deal. If I'm wrong, show me from Scripture. But don't tell me I have always was raised. I respect that. But I was always raised too, like this Pharisee. Tradition has to give way to biblical truth. Remember, sola scriptura. Jewish tradition, Baptist tradition. If you say the Bible is the highest authority, you have to subjugate tradition to text. If it squares, continue it. If it doesn't, reevaluate it. So, okay, that's... Uh... By the way, in the Old Testament, it spoke of tithes and offerings, right? The tithes was not an option, was required. It went to support the form of government in that day a theocracy, the temple, the priesthood. They were like government officials. Then an offering was above and beyond that. That's what you gave freely to support the work of God. Tithes and free will offerings. You know what the equivalent is today? Tax and offerings. Tax is not an option. It is required by law. If you don't pay it, you get locked up in jail. The tax goes to support today's government, not a theocracy, a democracy. But above and beyond it is our free will offering. That's what we give to the work of God. Interestingly, many today are in a 25 to 30% tax bracket, which is exactly what one would have been in the Old Testament based on the three tithes. You see? See the deal? So, okay, this may be, you know, I heard uh, in the uh, last class someone said, oh, I've never heard this. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. It just means you never heard that. <laughs> okay, never heard it. It doesn't mean it's invalidated. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It's wrong if it's wrong. So tell me if it's wrong. I can handle it. I'm a big boy, sort of. I cry a little bit. <laughs> tell me if it's wrong from Scripture. Study tithing in the New Testament. Tell me what you come up with. Okay, so here we go. Um, he fasts, he tithes, he's a religious guy. You know what he did? <clears throat> he omitted any petition to God in his prayer. Do you notice that? He doesn't appeal to God's mercy at all. Why? His own merits render God's mercy irrelevant. Why do you need God's mercy if you got it together yourself? <laughs> so all he does is rehearses in his own mind how cool he is. I'm religious, I'm moral, I'm not like these other peeps. I'm cool with God. So therefore, he doesn't have to petition God whatsoever. He had an I problem. No, not this I. I as an ego. I am not like the others. I fast. I tithe. That's an I. You know what? He had a self-esteem problem. That's what it was. Too much. So here's the deal. Today, we're doing the opposite of what it takes to be redeemed. We're trying to build up people's self-esteem. But the Bible wants it to be minimized. Why? Unless you die to self, you can't be alive to Savior. Today, we want to pump up the flesh, the virtue of humankind. So we, we laud human achievement, human accomplishment, this, that, and the other thing. Believe in yourself is what we say. Believe in yourself? Are you kidding me? You can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. You are more limited. I've told you this before. When I was a kid, I wanted to play NBA basketball. <laughs> it's not going to happen. No matter how much I believe in my five foot seven inch self, not going to happen. It's just a bad deal. We're laying a horrific trip on our kids because they, when they run into something beyond their 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 ability to deal with it, they have nowhere to go but self. We're making self the god, and what a weak god it is. It's the opposite message of the Bible. Our pastor has used this phrase. I really love it. Not self-esteem, savior 
self-esteem. We don't want our kids to believe they have everything in them they need to make it. We want them to believe they need outside help. And the Savior stands ready to be that help. You see, so, so this guy had a self-esteem problem. He, it was the religion of self-esteem. Uh, but the tax collector, oh, now we get a contrast. Standing some distance away. What does that mean? Probably from the Pharisee, also probably from the most prominent place, giving him closest proximity to the place of honor. Standing away. His posture, you will see, uh, indicated a sense of unworthiness to approach God. So he's standing some distance away. And, and he, was, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, this is contrary to the standard prayer position, as I was mentioning. This is how they would pray. But he was unwilling. He looked down. He stood away. He's looking down. He felt unworthy to approach God. Here's what's so ironic. You have to feel unworthy in approaching God before you are permitted approach to God. If you think you can just charge in as you are because of your own sense of morality and religiosity, oh, you, have, you, you don't have the ticket. You've got to get in the mercy line, not in the human merit line. The human merit line is really, really long, ready to have access to God. But no, no, no. You've got to get in the mercy. This guy said, I'm not standing there. I can't even look up. And then they would raise their hands like this. But look what he did with his hands. He was beating his breast like this. It's a sign of contrition. He was saying, God, be merciful to me. See the word Merciful. It's the same word from which we get the word mercy seat. Mercy seat was part of the furnishings in the Holy of Holies in the temple and tabernacle of old. It's also called the place of atonement. You know what this man, this Jewish man is saying? Oh, God. Please provide a place of atonement for me. Now, listen when he's praying it. While he's praying this, if it was at nine or three, the sacrifices are taking place. Unblemished male lambs are being slaughtered. Blood is being shed. It's as if he's saying, oh God, let that shed blood be the place of atonement for me. That's what he's saying. Be merciful to me, what does your Bible say next? Does it say a sinner or the sinner? Okay, how many have a sinner? Raise your hand. Thank you so much. How many have the sinner? Yeah, that's interesting. So which is it? I'll tell you what it is in the original. The. It's a definite article, not an indefinite article. <clears throat> What translation had the? What are you reading, Adam? I'm curious. Say, say again, brother. New American Standard has the. New American Standard. Um, I'm really being obnoxious and controversial. A is an incorrect translation. It's not right. What's the difference? You know what this guy's saying? I don't care about others. I'm not comparing myself to others as the Pharisee is. It's not about how I rank with others. I'm the sinner who stands in need of a place of atonement. Do with others what you will. I don't know what my ranking is. I don't know if I'm the worst person in the world or not. It doesn't matter. I'm the sinner. I need the atonement, the blood atonement. The Pharisee did the opposite. Remember, he said, I'm not like everybody else. He was comparing his religiosity and morality to others, and he was giving himself better grades, and he might have been right, but that's not what we do. We don't compare ourselves to one another. The comparison is to the holiness of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of my next-door neighbor. No! 
we fall short of the glory of God. Religious people compare themselves to one another. And you may do good in that comparison. Maybe you're not a murderer or a thief or a liar or an adulterer. Good. But that's not the basis of comparison. It's the almighty God. He said, here I am. You are holy. I am the sinner. Therefore, have mercy on me. It's a huge, huge, huge difference. The only way to be saved is to accept the fact that you're a sinner. (laughs) Like this guy. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Okay, so here's what happens. The Lord now applies this. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went to his house justified. Do you have that in your Bible, justified? Yeah. Rather than the other, the tax collector left the temple justified, not the Pharisee. Why? See, for everyone who exalts himself, as did the Pharisee, will be humbled. But he who humbles himself, as did the tax collector, will be exalted. It's something I call divine reversal. The Bible is filled with divine reversals. For instance, this is an interesting thing. If someone hurts you, we've been taught in life to get revenge. But the Bible says, no, don't do it. Don't take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. That's a divine reversal. Here's another one. We've been taught if you want to make it in life, um, keep your money, hoard it, accumulate it. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. Give it away. <laughs> oh, you, you keep a portion. You've got you to gotta make it. For Nothing wrong about that. But be a giver. And you'll be blessed. And then it'll be pressed down. You know, what you receive will be better. Pressed down, full measure, you know, running over. That's a divine reversal. Here's another divine reversal. The world says, achieve, climb, boom. Build yourself up. Build your self-esteem, boom, 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 boom. And you will be exalted. Here's the divine reversal. On the contrary. Make sure you accept your own unworthiness before almighty God and then he will exalt you. It's a divine river. See, opposite of what the world says. So this one went home justified. What does it mean? Forgiven? Yeah, but much more. The Pharisee thought on the basis of his right living, he had right standing. But God pronounced right standing on the tax collector even though he wasn't living rightly. The tax, the Pharisee thought the basis of right standing with God was personal righteousness. God said, no, it's imputed righteousness. It's me giving you a new standing. If you come realizing how unworthy you are, if you cry out for mercy, don't rehearse your merits to me. Don't compare how you're better than the guy next door. Understand my intense holiness, your intense sinfulness. If you come to me asking for mercy, I will not only forgive your sin, but in spite of the fact that you still have a sin problem, I will pronounce upon you a new standing. It'll be just as if you have not sinned. I'll take all your sins and cast it behind my back. As far as the east is from the west, I will separate you from your sin. I will no longer look upon you as a sinner who owes me anything. I see you to be an adopted son or daughter. Go home justified. See the difference? And God says, I will change you from the inside out so that your right living comes to be consistent with your right standing. I want you to grow into who you now are by my grace. You have lived according to your sinful nature, but I put my nature in you. Now, you need help in living that way. That's called sanctification. And I put the great sanctifier in you, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit, the Holy One. But even before you are fully sanctified, you are justified in my eyes. You have a new standing, not on the basis of what you do or do not do, on the basis of what I've done for you. I am the place of atonement. I am the Lamb of God who suffered and died for your sins. I am the one who satisfied all the requirements for the law of the law for you. I took my righteousness and I put it on your side of the account. Now go live that way. Sin no more. See the difference? Totally 
completely different approach. Now, the people in the day who were in the audience when the Lord was giving this parable would have been shocked because they would have known the Pharisee is a religious guy. The tax collector is not a good guy. But God says the not good guy realized he's not a good guy (laughs) and goes justified. See, it's a divine reversal, divine reversal. The Pharisee would have said, oh, yeah, I make mistakes from time to time. The tax collector said, it's not about mistakes, I sin. See, that's what's happening today in the cult of self-esteem. Nobody sins anymore, did you know that? When a politician or some famous personality gets caught having an affair or something like that, I made a mistake. How is it a mistake when you contrive a clandestine affair that you sustain over years at taxpayer expense, and then you get caught, and then you say, I made a mistake. That is not a mistake. Here's the confession. Oh, God, I have sinned. Forgive me. The sinner, have mercy on me. That's what it takes. A mistake is when instead of making a right turn on on 45, you make a left turn. (laughs) Commission of uh, deliberate sin in violation of God's standard is not a mistake. It reveals what we're made of. And you can clean it up with religious behavior and, uh, you know, a semblance of morality. But the heart, you know what's amazing to me? Uh, Elliot Spitzer was the governor of New York. Is that right? He had an affair with some woman for a long time. Uh, He he gets caught. Uh, I don't know if his marriage is sustained or what. I don't know what the deal is. Do you know he's a commentator on TV now? I didn't say to crucify him. No, I'd rather pray that he would believe in the crucified one. I didn't say he's worse than me. He's the same as me. We're all the same. So don't misunderstand. It's not disdain towards the man. It just shows society. This is a guy we give a TV show to? Why? Because we're not seeing the horrific nature of sin in the light of the intense holiness of God, which should reduce us to this. Even though everyone's having affairs, apparently. Schwarzenegger's doing it, this one's doing it, that one's whatever. You can't say, I'm a sinner. You have to say, oh, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I don't know about anybody else. I can't compare myself in degree to the sin of others. I have to compare myself to you. I have violated your commandments. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever done that? That's the prerequisite for salvation. That's the only way. You have to have a profound sense of your unworthiness in approaching God before you can gain approach to God. So even now, if you're sitting here, you're a Christian, but you're feeling uh, a little uh, uncomfortable by your own nature, yay, I hope that never goes away until the, I mean, until the time of the Lord's return. That keeps us in our place. That makes us uh, throw ourselves upon, with gratitude, the mercy of God instead of, hey, I've gone to church three times this week. I tithe. Good. I mean, these are good. Don't misunderstand. These are good things, but that's not it. Oh, God, thank you for being the lamb who suffered and died in my place. Thank you for covering up for my unworthiness with your worth. Thank you for putting your righteousness on my side of the account. Thank you for canceling out my sin. My pocket's going off. Did you hear that? Yeah, it's a phone. I forgot to turn it off. Sorry about that. I'm only human, Dave. You don't have to look at (laughs) it. I don't want to talk to you. (laughs) Folks, in his real, real blessing to accept your nature (laughs) and go on from there. It's a real, real blessing to have the guilt of your sin, not of your mistakes, the guilt of your sin forgiven. It's a real, real blessing to be accepted, adopted into God's family in spite of the fact that we are who we are. It's a real, real blessing to be changed from the inside out by God's power and strength. Don't deny who you are. Don't build up your self-esteem. Don't be strong. You know, you get this to be strong. You can do it. 
You can't do anything. You can't even take the next breath of life if God withholds it. You are vapor. From dust you came to dust you will return. Me too. I love the fact that I'm weak and fragile. Last night I couldn't sleep, ladies. I was thinking about our Israel trip and how much I'm not in control of and concerned about. And I remember saying, oh God, this is so good. I need you. We need you. We can't do this. I just want to be your little kid. I just want to be dependent. We'll do our part, but it isn't good enough. Oh God, aren't you responsible for us? Isn't salvation your idea? Why don't you make something of this trip? Why don't you just overshadow our nature? That kind of thing. It's so great to be weak and helpless. Didn't Paul say that? When I'm weak, I'm strong. For his grace is sufficient for me. Not my self-esteem. Self-esteem. Okay. Thanks for coming. Lord Jesus, this is why we bow. Whatever the prayer position is in our hearts, we bow. Look how good you've been to us. Why are you not repulsed by us? We can't even stand one another. I think that's called mercy. Why haven't you just wiped this all out? I think it's called grace. Look what you've done. You've solved the sin problem. Sin's not the problem. It's refusal to acknowledge it. That's the problem. Thank you for enabling us to confess, to turn to you, to be cleansed, to go from this place justified. Lord Jesus, I pray no one leave church today unjustified. Make us all to be like the tax collector, Lord Jesus, empty so as to be filled with your spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you sometime.